Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. I want to take time to thank our supporting partners who make this podcast possible, and this month that's the Strength Factory and Kotick. Ben from the Strength Factory was on the podcast late last year, talking about fitness for the everyday mountain biker. The episode is full of great information and has been really popular, so if you've not heard it yet, then you can find it at downtimepodcast.com forward slash everyday dash fitness. This time of the year, a lot of us thinking about getting fitter and better on the bike. Unfortunately, most people set off with good intentions, but don't stick with it, often because they've gone too hard. The Strength Factory isn't promising new abs by the end of January. What they want to do is make your whole year better. Their over 40s MTB program is an achievable 20-week plan, which is designed to fit around the ups and downs that life throws at us, so that you can stick at it, be consistent and reap the rewards. The program is flexible, so you can hit the gym if you like, but you can also do it at home with just a few cheap resistance bands, so it's super simple to get going. If, however, you feel like you've got plenty of time and energy, access to a gym, and you want more, then Strength Factory have got you covered with their complete MTB program. It starts with an eight-week foundation and then moves to a monthly subscription for a year-round plan that will get you fit and strong for riding and racing. Alongside the strength sessions, there's also mobility sessions, progressive sprint and interval training sessions, all there to get you ready for anything a ride or an event can throw at you. So if you want to be better this year and either of those programs takes your fancy, then head over to thestrengthfactory.uk now and check them out. That's thestrengthfactory.uk. I've ridden Kotics for ages and it goes without saying that I'm a massive fan of their bikes, but I also love their ethos as a brand. Kotic is a small company who are focused on their customers and doing great things for the sport. Being customer focused is always an awesome thing, but with parts in short supply, it's even more important than ever. Kotic are going to do everything they can to help you get a new bike. They offer partial builds so you can swap over good parts from your current bike. They'll even let you send them parts that you've sourced and they'll build them into your shiny new bike for you. With Kotick, it really is your bike built for you. Give them a call and you'll speak to an actual human who will help you through the process of getting your dream build ready to go. Also, with their UK manufacturing of suspension bikes, they often have stock when others don't. And if, after all that, you don't get on with a new ride, they offer a 30-day love-it-or-your-money-back guarantee. So, if you're in the market for an awesome new bike, then give them a call. Once you have a Kotick, whether it's a brand new bike from them or secondhand, then you're part of the Kotick family and a member of their owner's club, Kotick CC. Kotick support all their old models, so they're always going to be there to help you out. They've also run loads of Kotick CC events to bring people together and share the buzz of riding. In the past, they've run events where they've hired a skate park just for Kotick owners. They've hired Revolution Bike Park in the same way, so it's all super friendly and a safe environment for people to hang out and give these things a go. There's a spring party at Kotick HQ every year where all owners are welcome to come along for a ride and Kotick provide the beers and they've run owners rides at events like Ard Rock and in the deepest darkest depths of winter to help their owners beat those winter blues. It's not just a bike sale, they genuinely care about their customers and want to share the awesome experience of bikes with them. You can see all the past Kotick CC events and find out about upcoming events on their website at kotick.co.uk forward slash cc. If you want to find out more about Kotick in general and check out their awesome bikes, you can do that all over at kotick.co.uk. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode of the podcast, please make sure you're following us wherever it is you listen. There's probably a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. If you can't find the button, then downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe has links to all the major podcast platforms there to help you get sorted. Also, please give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook where we're at Downtime Podcast. That way you'll be able to keep up to date with what we're up to and never miss a thing.
All right. Joe Nation is a racer who's done things differently. Joe set off from New Zealand on an overseas adventure to race the World Cups, which involved spending the season living in the woods in Morzine on a budget of €1.50 a day. After heading back home to go to uni, Joe discovered Enduro and straight away was hooked. Ultimately, picking up a ride with the pro team, his path has not been straightforward. We chat about Joe's approach to racing and how that's changed over the years, hear how Joe made the move to Enduro and what it's been like riding for Pole. Joe's story shows what can be done if you've got the drive and determination and aren't afraid to rough it a little. So, without further ado, here's Joe Nation. Joe Nation, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's it going? Yeah, cheers, Chris. Stoked to be a part of it. Eh? I've been a long-time listener, so um, yeah, pretty exciting to be on the, on the receiving end for once. Good stuff. Yeah, Katie uh, recommended you as a guest in like 2017 and it's taken me this long to get around to it so apologies for that but we did finally get there um so yeah excited to have a bit of a chat and i guess start off like bikes were kind of a bit late for you compared to a lot of the people that i speak to what were you up to before before you discovered mountain bikes yeah i did actually i was um i did start pretty late i was just doing the usual sort of kiwi kiwi upbringing thing which was rugby and cricket and um just summer cricket, rugby in the winter, and then um, it wasn't until I was about 15 or so that I, I think my brother's mate came around with a big downhill bike, a Kona Stinky, and I just looked at that thing, I was like, what on earth is that, you know, give me a go, <laughs> and I was just plowing up and down, you know, gutters and stuff, and um, yeah, he told me about mountain biking and downhill, and I was I was keen, hooked. Sweet, so did you go out and get yourself a bike, like? Yeah, I did. I got a um, a Kona stuff, um, pre-ordered one in, real cheap, and just uh, I think I mainly did urban sort of riding for about six months before I finally made it to the other side of Christchurch and up the hills. Um, but that was quite good, I think, just harking off steps and um, mucking around, get some skills, balancing and that. And then, um, yeah, it wasn't until about six months or so that I did my first downhill run. And then um, quickly after that, I think every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, I'll be up at like 6am, which was unheard of for me. And then, um, yeah, pedaling across town, up in the hills with some mates and just pushing up and down, sessioning, loving it. Nice. you got proper good uh, trails kind of pretty locally then in Christchurch, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, we've got Victoria Park. Um, now we've got Christchurch Adventure Park with the chairlift and things. But back then there was just... Um, just a wee sort of mountain bike park on the on the hills there with but it was good it's probably got about 10 or so downhill tracks so couldn't couldn't ask for too much more growing up nice and are you like a naturally competitive person was it was it the kind of obvious choice for you to go racing uh no racing wasn't i i just loved doing it to be honest i'm always a bit competitive because i'm the youngest of three boys i think <laughs> uh-huh. but um i'd mainly just compete against my mates just to be the first one to send a jump or <laughs> um you know hark a drop and yeah. um we yeah we basically just used to have big sort of riding sessions just maybe if it rained just go and hit a, an unrideable greasy corner and just see who could do it and things so it was more competitive in that way and it actually took me ages to figure out that you could sort of race these bikes and people were doing it internationally and um, it was kind of a big deal. Um, we were sort of in a bit of a 
close-knit little bunch that weren't really aware of these things. And um, it wasn't until one of my mates got started showing me the Earth series, and that just changed my life. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is wild, you know, and uh, these guys are really good and you know, they're, they're earning money doing riding bikes. I couldn't believe it, eh? And it just looked like a lot of fun. So I was like, well, we should do that. We should start racing. And um, a crew of us started traveling around New Zealand a little bit to, to hit some local races and national series and things. Nice. Do you remember your first downhill race well? Yeah, I did. Um, I think it was a, a treble cone, Wanaka downhill race. And... Um, yeah, I just didn't know really how to approach it, to be honest. Like, just didn't know how to – I'd never really had much experience doing a full run top to bottom because we just okay. – we never got uplifts or anything. And so the whole sort of fitness and, you know, um, wasn't really worried about fitness, but it was more just like my hands couldn't, couldn't break at the bottom and my arms couldn't hang on and things like that. So – it was all a big surprise for me. I was like, wow, this is for like, this is more than just hooking a few turns or setting a jump. It's a whole different ball game. So it was interesting. Yeah. And did you, you enjoyed that side of it? It was something you wanted to carry on doing, I guess. I enjoyed it because, uh, we're all just stoked to go and ride some new tracks and, um, you know, different than what we'd, we'd ridden for a couple of years in Christchurch. And, um, like in Triple Cone that for example we had the access to the chairlift and that was just unheard of like I'd never been skiing or anything like that so um, we were all pretty blown away and so we just wanted to carry on around New Zealand and ride more tracks and go you know and um, it wasn't it wasn't massively competitive I just wanted to beat my mates really um, and then in a couple of races in under 19 I did I did started doing you know a little bit better so I thought well this could be, uh, I could be a bit of a racer here, you know, could give it a decent nudge. Nice. Yeah. It was a national champs in Nelson, wasn't it? That was like a bit of a turning point for you where you beat, you beat Eddie Masters. I think a young Josh Bryceland was there. Oh, was he? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, no. I had an absolute blinder that weekend day. It was sort of unexplainable to me. I hadn't, you could call it a breakout performance. So I was pretty surprised myself. <laughs> yeah. Coming second there. Um, Matt Skulls won, he cleaned up. He was like in the top five of the pro elite men. Um, but yeah, I came second and I was like, wow, you know, that was that was incredible because I, I was having all sorts of, I had no idea, like um, on the way up to Nelson, I remember my forks just didn't really work and I didn't know what to do. So I literally got a crescent, unscrewed the top and my mate and I were like, oh, this is where the oil must go. Just got some engine oil and just poured it into the stanchion at the top. <laughs> Nice. And, and then um, clearly they did not work. You know, I think I only had like ten mil of travel or something. And um, <laughs> but I think that was that could have been the secret. There was a huge wallows down this fringe hill Nelson track, and I sort of had no option with a lack of suspension just to sort of get off the brakes and skip over the holes. Where yeah. I think people were like, "Oh, we'll get on the brakes and, and soak it all up." And um, yeah, so it was just like commit or just not ride at all. So um, I think that helped me to pull off that sort of one-off result it was great <laughs> nice yeah josh bryston was sixth in that race so yeah definitely and uh even kind of pretty early on in the new zealand scene you were doing the the racing and the traveling on a pretty tight budget i think is it is it true you saved a bit of money for nationals in wellington by not taking a car on the ferry 
Yeah, yeah. That was a laugh. My mate Rufus and I just sort of drove to Picton and then uh, from there we went tramping bags and, you know, downhill bikes across. It was only 10 bucks to take take your bike across. And then, um, yeah, went through Wellington, the capital city, and had to climb climb up like a 500-metre hill and camped at the sort of close to the top of the downhill track. And, um, yeah, Wellington's known, known for its fierce winds and things, so we were pretty much getting blown off the hillside. <laughs> um, my mate Rufus breaks his collarbone on the first uh, practice run, and so he has what? a terrible next couple of nights. Um, yeah, my tent snaps in half at one one point. He's he's wrapped in a tarpaulin from the rain <laughs> with a, with a um, broken collarbone. Yeah, it was chaos, eh? but we always look back and have a laugh at those early days. Um and yeah, after trips like that, we're always like we're always discussing at that point, like oh maybe we can maybe we can go and do this, you know, in, in Europe and and um make it happen. It'd be epic. Yeah, fair play. So yeah, you made a made a call to try and get out to Europe and have a go at racing World Cups. How do you go about putting together the funds for that? Because it's a big deal coming from New Zealand to to those races, right? Yeah, massive deal, and um. I just sort of, you know, was, we started planning this in my last year of school, seventh form, and um, yeah, I had no idea how I was going to make it happen. Um, but what I ended up doing is doing um, sort of like drug trials. They had, <laughs> so I think as soon as I turned eighteen, it was like the next week I took, um, I took like over, I think it was two weeks off school, yeah, and went into this we. Um, you know, this little, I suppose it was a lab, eh? and then they test some drugs. It's safe. It's not like the, you know, the terrible thing that happened in, in the UK a few years back, but um, pretty safe, I think. And uh, <laughs> anyway, it was my mate and I were locked in this room for 12 days, and um, we ended up getting five and a half grand for that. So that's like flights and, and some. Um, yeah. And yeah, I got back, to, got back to school, and I think I'd like, I'd been given permission. I said I was going on some sort of holiday or something like that, you know, but um, my English teacher said, oh, how's your, how's your, I mentioned something. He mentioned something and called me a white rat or something like that, you know, because <laughs> it um, turns out his, his wife was a nurse there and she had, um, what? yeah, uh, so I just called, I just said, what happened to patient uh, confidentiality there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he was a bit of a mountain biker himself, and I explained, look, I, I want to get over to Europe, and this is how it's going to happen, and he was all about it, actually. So I did a, a few of those and, um, yeah, raised the coin, got myself probably eight or so thousand Kiwi dollars to, to make it happen. Nice. What bike did you have at that point? Um, before I left, I had just been hooked up by Morwood, a New Zealand okay. importer, and they gave me a, a frame cheap. And um, so that was pretty good. And I I won a video competition. Um, we'd made a uh, like an eight minute video, and there was a competition like Justin Leov and Cameron Cole and stuff were like the judges. Uh-huh. And um, and I was lucky enough to win that, and I got two thousand Kiwi dollars to spend on SRAM products to to kit that bike out. Sweet. Yeah. So I hadn't actually ridden it. I um sort of built it up for the first time when I got to Europe, and um. Yeah, I was pretty excited though. It was definitely the freshest bike I've ever had. Still Very some old nice parts perfect. in there as well, but it was it was good. 
Yeah, perfect timing as well. And a lot of people I speak to kind of have these dreams really early on of like becoming world champion. And you mentioned earlier that it wasn't, you're not the maybe the most competitive. Was it, did you have those dreams or were you more kind of going for the experience? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 100%. This was purely experience, eh? Like the, um, here in New Zealand, we just call it going for an OE, an overseas experience. And I just knew I didn't want to go straight to uni. I, w- I wanted to go and travel. I loved riding bikes. And I also, you know, wasn't sure I have a good party at the time. So um, watching watching Earth, I was like, well, this is just the triple whammy, you know. like <laughs> This is we can go and, like, ride these the best tracks in the world. We can have a massive shindig after it and, um, yeah, just travel around and go to some sweet places. So it ticked the boxes for us. And uh, so, yeah, my mate Rufus and I um, headed on over, eh? Nice. What was your first World Cup experience like? Where did you go first? Uh, we landed in Barcelona and we went to Andorra. Um, uh-huh. And we were there probably a good 10 days early. And... Um, yeah, so and I hadn't done much travel out of like New Zealand to be honest. So that was all, you know, crazy new to me. We took a a bus from um from Barcelona to into the Andorra, and we got there at like midnight, and um, we just bushwhacked into the you know off the from the main little city there in in Andorra, and found a spot in the bush to just um, lie down and. Uh, <laughs> We were just sort of curled up beside our bite boxes and um, and we heard this growling in the woods, you know, and we're just talking. We're like, isn't there like wolves and bears and stuff? <laughs> we're like, I don't know. We didn't even, I don't even think we had phones at the time. You know, obviously you couldn't Google that or anything. So we yeah. were just putting up with this growling and we're just shivering, sort of freezing and, and cuddled in between our um, bite boxes for safety. <laughs> and then... Um, and then it turns out there was like uh, a week or two of like the world, uh, like uh, the most rain they've had in a hundred years, and it was just Perfect. chaos. Yeah, so we were <laughs> we were intense, and um, oh, there were some horrible nights, you know, some horrible nights. And then at one point, I remember being in the toilets of a camping ground just because the tent didn't work anymore. We'd <laughs> we'd went to the camping ground, we couldn't resist, you know, and then. Yeah, we're just sort of sleeping in the bathroom <laughs> to try and stay dry. <laughs> um, so not ideal prep, but uh, it actually cleared up a bit for the race, so it was good. Yeah, how did you feel by the time the race rolled around? Pretty tired, I guess. Yeah, probably pretty tired. I was probably pretty used to it, though. Um, and, yeah, new bike as well. I think the practice yeah. runs were pretty much the first time I rode it down the hill. Um, so... Yeah, it was just all it was all new. I think I was more just starstruck to be honest to be there than actually concentrate on, you know, concentrating on racing. Just watching yeah. Sam Hill go down and you know, Matty Lacon and all those guys and I was just like, Wow, that's incredible. And I was more worried about being in their way. <laughs> so I'd be I'd ride like in ten meter sections and then stop and make sure no one was behind me and carry on. And um that was cool. I had mates over there, you know, I was good mates with Wynn and, uh, you know, other guys that helped me out and said, look, you know, don't worry about it too, mate. You've got the pace in New Zealand. It's just, you're just riding down a hill, you know? So it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I guess you, yeah, you had that, like, there was quite a few good Kiwi riders at that point. So you knew, you knew you had some speed, right? If you could keep up with them at a national yep. then you had a chance at a world cup, I guess. Yeah. That's always the, the theory. Um, but it, it is such a different ball game 
over in Europe. You know, the tracks are bigger and gnarlier and wider, and the you know it's, the pace is more intense. And even those Kiwis that I was comparing myself to in New Zealand, you know, they've got more in the tank when it comes to a World Cup. And um, so I was always just really aware of that and thought, you know. I've got no idea what the pace is going to be like, you know, and and then you watch a couple of the big dogs come through and you're like, you know, what earth is that on? You know, it's crazy. So, um, and then you think, even though you don't have that skill, you think to, to, to warrant yourself being at that world cup, you've got to send that line. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what I thought. And so I was trying these lines and just crashing and out of control. And, you know, just, I didn't just have the confidence to go like, look, get down the hill it's probably all right pace you know so yeah it was always the issue um it was always like 120 percent always trying to punch above my skill level it seems so started from yeah it was it was like that new zealand before i'd gone over and then i just took that mentality straight over to the world cups it's pretty common in younger riders and certainly less experienced i think that definitely happens a lot at world cups but uh yeah, how did did you get on? Was it what was the qualifying then? Eighty. Yeah, eighty. Eighty was qualifying. I think I ended up a hundred and twenty second or so. Um, in okay, the qualifying. so that's a solid first race. Yeah, yeah. Seeing that I crashed and smashed into a tree, I was like, "This is not too bad," you know. Like, and at the time, I was happy with that run, you know, because I was most runs I was, you know, doing something, crashing and things. So, um, and I wasn't, you know, that back then there was huge numbers trying to qualify as well you know, hundreds and hundreds. So being 122nd, I don't even know how far off I was. I was actually pleasantly surprised. I was like, wow, this is this is pretty cool, you know. Nice, cool. And off from there to Fort William, yeah? Yeah, Fort William, yep. Well, we ended up traveling there with Wynn because he was arrested that night at the after party. So we definitely um, <laughs> we definitely got our wish, you know. We, we'd raced the World Cup and then um, we ended up at like Cedric Gracia's bar that night and uh you know had a huge evening and you know the police turned up and all sorts of stuff so yeah the overseas experience was going well yeah delivering yeah it was delivering so yeah when rufus and i headed up to scotland and uh had a yeah same sort of thing at uh fort william we stayed in a campground this time and um yeah uh, i had to do the the pedal commute from fort william township up to the um you know down to the race venue and, and up over to the hill yeah. on the downhill bike. Nice. And, uh, yes. And I wasn't good warm a fit, up. Yeah, good warm up. I wasn't a fit human at the time as well, so that probably <laughs> taxed most of my energy just getting there and home every day. Um I think by the last by the by the qualifying day and stuff, I just resided to leaving my bike in a bush and hitchhiking there and back. <laughs> 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 just because my legs couldn't handle it anymore. Um but yeah, that was the same sort of thing, just quality with a crash and around the same sort of, yeah, around the same sort of number, just couldn't stay on my bike. Yeah, it's a brutal place to uh, try and get up to speed, I think. Mm, for sure. Yeah, for sure. yeah. It, was, it was frustrating as well because like I do a practice run following win and uh, he'd, you know, he'd basically um, tone me down and he'd, he'd just say, if you go that speed, you'll you'll get inside the top 80, you know, you've got it. How did you feel? Was that comfortable? And I was like, yeah, it's comfortable. And then he'd follow me for a section just to make sure I wasn't just like 
he wasn't just making it really easy for me and I was just following him. Yeah, it's always easier following. And he's like, no, 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 that's good speed, you know. And then, of course, so I'm coming in confident. I'm like, wow, that's all I have to do. That's, that's manageable. I can I can get inside this top 80. And then just classic, just in the start gate, come out and you're just at 120%, you know. You just, there's no need to be adding 20% more speed onto what, you know, he's just told you he's going to qualify, but I just couldn't handle it. I just didn't really have the head for it, so I just push harder, and it was only a matter of time before I was down in those runs. So, seemed to be the reoccurring yeah. thing. Brutal lessons for sure. Yeah. And I spoke to Win uh, late last year. He mentioned that for him, like, because he's quite an outgoing guy, and he was, you know, out in the pits chatting to all the teams. That really helped him, like, get on as a privateer. I guess was that like a similar experience for you? Like you mentioned, you were partying hard and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was at the parties, it's probably the only time I was chatting to people. <laughs> Other than that, I'd just try and shy away um, from any sort of media, well, any sort of attention at all, really. Uh-huh. Um, I was just there. I suppose I wasn't as ambitious as when he knew, like, he had the speed and he knew he could make it happen and he knew that you have to talk to people to make things happen. And, um, I just didn't really back myself. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm just here. I'll do some racing. If if um, if it goes well pace-wise, then things will lead on from there. But I definitely yeah. didn't didn't put the effort in to meet people or anything like that. I just um, just kept it real quiet. I, I was actually quite embarrassed, I think, at the time when I turned up to these races and I'd be living in a tent in the bush and things because I thought it was – you know, it's not not the best look <laughs> for the World Cup. People, <laughs> it's not the norm. It's not the norm. And um, it sort of takes the edge off uh, the World Cup if people are sleeping in the bushes and racing it. So I just kept it quiet and kept to myself, really. So, yeah, the opposite approach to win. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair play. And, I mean, you quickly start getting through money, I guess, once you're in Europe and moving about and, you know, having to fly to places like Fort William. So you decided to base yourself in one spot and save a bit of cash to get through the summer, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was pretty blown away um, at how much I chopped through uh, in the first, like, three weeks, you know, Andorra and Scotland. And I was like, all right, I've 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 just got to find a base. And um, I'd heard all about Morzine. Um, a few of the Kiwi guys had been basing themselves there um, in previous seasons. So made my way there. And, um, yeah, I just, I was like, it was, I walked into the place and I said, if this is really good, then I'll commit because it's, you know, going to take all of my money. Otherwise I'll just have to sort of do another couple of races and head home early. Um, but you know, as soon as I went there, it was like paradise and I think it was 127 euros for a season pass. So I could swindle that. Yeah. And, um, and then I just, yeah, found a good spot to set up the tent. And that was me for three, three and a half months. And, and for a good chunk of that, another Kiwi mate of mine, Grey Boy, came over and, and hung out in the woods as well. And, um, yeah, it was just absolutely living, eh? It was great. Yeah. How far out of town were you then? Were you, like, properly hidden away in the woods or? No, um, we were we were pretty close. At the start, we were, um, we were actually really worried that we'd get, you know, caught and get kicked out of there. Um, and so we were like camouflaging everything and we had a, a lot of greenery around us and foliage and things. But then we sort of figured out that nobody really cared. I don't even think there was police, you know, in the, in the township at the time back in 2008. So, um, 
it was just fair game and, and we were really close to um it's it's like where all the single tracks the steep single tracks pop out onto that yeah. four drive track that runs along the bottom we we're just yeah. um just tucked in there so probably about five or ten minutes walk from the town center and um yeah, right. Went back and visited this year, and there's a single track going straight through my campsite sort of type, type thing. So, um, wouldn't Perfect. be yeah, it wouldn't be as easy these days. There's so many tracks and people there, but um, it was absolutely ideal. Nice. Well, what was the daily budget? Yeah, we we whittled that down to um, about a euro fifty. Because the more you <laughs> the, the more you hang out in the place, the more you you figure out the hacks, you know, and yeah. um. Yeah, we had a, a pretty good system. We just had, um, in the morning it was, you could get this chocolate brioche that was like 80 euro cents and it was huge. It was like even longer than a normal loaf of bread. And so that was breakfast and then, you know, half of that for breakfast and then half of that for lunch. Yeah. And then um, and then we just had um, like frozen chips or you know, I suppose they're just cold. They're just bags of we just buy, buy two kg bags of chips and just heat them up on the pan over the fireplace. So the fireplace was actually a big save. It, we were starting on gas because we didn't want to um, put fumes out and get seen at the start. Um, yeah, and smoke from the fire. And then as soon as we just stopped caring and just were able to have a fire going the whole time, then um, yeah, it cut down on the money a lot. So yeah, just awesome. chips and brioche. Eh? Fair play. Was there a budget for beer? Was there like a special weekly allowance? No, basically no. It was pretty brutal. Eh? Um, it, only towards the end, when I knew I was going to make it to the end of the, you know, the stay, I let yeah. myself let myself go. But there was, um, you could buy a bottle of champagne there down at the Ed supermarket for like seventy cents. So what? Yeah, it was crazy. So I, we used to, yeah, just. Drink a bottle of champagne by the, by the fire, right? Just, <laughs> just celebrating another great day in paradise. Though. Classy. Yeah. How are the energy levels after three months of uh, brioche and chip diet? Yeah, I um, well the the body weight went down quite drastically, actually. Um, I, I'm sort of quite a usually quite a muscular guy, and uh. You know, just without training or anything, but and uh, yeah, I was just skin and bone at that point. I'd lost about ten kg, and uh, there's Whoa. some there's some photos out there um, that I could pass on to you. That's just just ribs, you know. Um, <laughs> I was not phased though, and I and I think I was still good at riding a bike, which was interesting. Like, I suppose they're mainly just like you know really steep shooty tracks those ones in Morzine so you don't need to be really physical but uh-huh. I, was, I was just increasing in speed and just getting more and more confident and faster and, and everything throughout the three and a half months you know like I suppose you just couldn't help it because the amount of riding you know like in the morning I'd wake up and it was a better option to use the toilets at the uh, gondola station Yeah. so I'd just wake up in the morning jump out of the tent jump on the downhill bike roll down get up on the gondola use the facilities at the gondola station at the top like you know bit of water on the face and all that stuff and then ride down like the Ancaro Chausson track which ended really close to the campsite you know it's just yeah and then you're having breakfast so um if that ain't gonna make you fast I don't know I don't know what is you know yeah Yeah, that's an awesome way to start a day yeah 
Fair play. And you raced one more World Cup that season, I think, which was Schlabming. Was that a conscious decision to like save your money for that one? That was the one. That was like every every earth and sprung video that I watched, that was the track, you know. And all the all the cool guys that, that I looked up to, all those races were were good at it and they liked it. And I was like, Well that's that's the one I wanna do. That's the one I wanna have a you know, I just wanna ride that track. And um so yeah, definitely was keen to hang out for that one. And that was the last last race of the season. And um but my bike was pretty decrepit by that point, as you can imagine. It was just an absolute state of disarray. So um Jason Marsh, Marshy um helped me out quite a bit actually. But I, I travelled to Schlabing with him and um Chris Kilmurray, point one. Um and they the yeah, Jace just sort of just put everything new on my bike off his own bike. So just wow everything apart from the rear wheel and that ended up being the downfall actually i went out started pedaling out of the qualifying at the start gate and snapped something in my free wheel so i just had no oh. chain um which was just classic classic luck and but still on you know i think it was still my best qualifier that year i think i was in the 80 i was really close anyway yeah and, i was gonna say you're like 80 second or something yeah yeah i was i was close um frustratingly close um and so that's just testament to just riding your bike, I suppose. Eh? Like even though I'd lost 10 kg and all that stuff, like I was just handy on a bike. And um, yeah, without pedal, you didn't need to pedal too much in Schlabing, but I'd say with a chain, I probably would have got there. Um, but th- this is a classic example of me wanting to fly under the radar. Um, Marshy had some photos of the camp set up and he thought, he thought it was a cool story and um, yeah. he wanted to put it on Dirt Mag. And um, I wasn't keen. I was like, "Oh no, nah, it's embarrassing, you know. Just this, this is just my own little, own little thing, and I don't really want people knowing about it." And um, and he's. We came to the conclusion that if if I qualified, then I'd let him post the stuff on dirt. And if I didn't, then uh, then yeah, it could just. I'd, I'd never see the, the light of day. Those photos. So. Um, <laughs> I was actually quite relieved when I finally came out of second. I was like, oh, well, at least at least those photos won't come out. <laughs> Fair play. Have yeah. you ever seen them? No, I haven't. No, I don't. I think you might have misplaced them. I'd, I'd imagine it was how many years ago was that? You know, fourteen or so. So it's pretty pretty long time ago. Yeah, we'll have to raid his archives one day and see if they're there. Oh, it'd be classic, wouldn't it? Yeah, good to see for sure. And yeah, on the way back from that season, you had plans for a Whistler trip, right? Oh yeah, that yeah, I did. I did. I ambitiously booked a five day stay over because I thought Whistler would be another great spot to check out. Um I don't know how I thought I'd have the money for that, but when I arrived in Vancouver Airport, I had about forty two remember the number, forty two Canadian dollars to my name. Uh-huh. And obviously that wouldn't have even got me the bus fare to get to Whistler. And um so it was four or five nights. Um I can't remember. Um, but I just stayed in the airport and, uh, yeah, camped out, found a wee, found a wee corner, a wee nook. <laughs> and, um, I was with my mate Rufus, who I'd, I'd initially flown over with at that point. So, um, at least had some company and, yeah. um, yeah, they only cottoned on to us the night before we left and they were like, oh, we saw you on the, you know, video cameras last night and we're like, oh, sorry, can we just stay one more night, you know, blah, blah, blah. But little did they know that we'd been there most of the week. <laughs> Um, and there was a really nice lady at the muffin shop who'd give me a, a muffins for a dollar and I was just living off those and um, yeah so not not the Whistler trip I hoped for but uh, ah. 
still, what? still yeah, ticked off. What did you do in an airport? Yeah, what did you do in an airport for five days? Um, not much. I was just reading a few books, just reading, yeah, and uh, yeah, from the bookstore, and then returning them a bit cheeky. But I was desperate for some entertainment, and uh, yeah, yeah. Fair so, yeah, oh, I did lose my mind a fair bit. I bet, yeah, and that was sort of the end of the the World Cup travels for a little bit. But you followed the same path as quite a few of the Kiwi riders did back then you went to build trails for a very rich man out in chile for a bit that must have been a pretty amazing experience it was that was incredible yeah it was um it was just perfect for a lot of us riders that they that um that billionaire or whatever he was um wanted the kiwis to build his trails so um and uh yeah when and a few of us got on got on trips to go over there i did two three month stints and um it is really remote you know you jump off the plane and you you're in the northern part of patagonia type thing and then you drive along a gravel road for like an hour or something and then you jump on a uh, jet boat and go across a lake and then you finally find this wee sort of lodge accommodation and we just pedaled up and down the hills all day digging tracks and yeah it was it was wild it was great yeah, and a good place to boost some fitness, I guess, as well, because you're out of cheer, you're pedaling a lot for work. Yeah, true. Yeah, that was um, the first time I'd really, you know, pedaled up a hill, to be honest, I think, because um, <laughs> you have to to get to work. And um, I was actually quite handy at it, like um, a fit guy, a relatively fit guy, naturally, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I really started getting into that, the pedaling up, and also I started enjoying – riding the smaller travel bike oh actually it was just a little hardtail that i took over there um you know down the hill it was like a really good challenge and the trails were building were a lot more basic than the the downhill stuff i was used to um so the small hardtail was just heaps of fun i was like wow this is great i don't think enduro was a thing or anything at that point but i remember thinking like this is a lot of fun Nice, nice. And that helped fund a bit more time in Europe, right? You came back in 2010 for more World Cups. Yeah, I just came back for more abuse, more crashing. I um, <laughs> went, back, went back in 2010. I think I entered 11 races um, because I was doing Swiss Cups and IXS and everything. I uh-huh. crashed in 10 race runs out of 11, and that oh. includes qualifying. Like, you know, that's oh, that's race run for me, obviously. Um, yeah. So, yeah, crashed, crashed in 10 out of 11. And um, managed to qualify in Champery World Cup. That was the one and only qualifying. And um, uh-huh. that's because it absolutely pissed down. And um, you didn't need any fitness or strength, I don't think, really. <laughs> and um, and basically everyone was crashing. So I could do my two crashes that I usually had and, and still, <laughs> still came in 48th, I think. So I was over the moon, eh? Yeah, fair play. That was a hell of a, a weekend. A lot of Kiwis went well there, right? Wing qualified fifth, I think. Blinky qualified first. What What was it? Is this something that you guys are all used to riding? Like, yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, the Kiwis in general just seemed to um, maybe just not slow down as much. Would probably be the, <laughs> the idea. I think yes. Um, the conditions were wild and. Um, I don't know. We don't really ride. We're going from summer to summer, so yeah. I wouldn't say we practice in that a huge deal. Um, but, but I don't know. 
it's just we're just I think we're all pretty keen um, you know to get all the way over from New Zealand to race these World Cups um, and then you're there at the top of the hill it's sort of I can imagine it's a little bit more motivating to to not button off the pace as opposed to if you're French or something and you're just around the corner you'd be like well bugger this I'll just get down and go home you know, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, we're a long way from home you're gonna make it happen eh? and yeah. um yeah, no, it, that was also just a lot of fun. Like just to ride a track and just literally try and stay on your bike. There was something pretty enjoy enjoyable about that for me. I was like, wow, you know, you didn't need to worry about lines. You didn't need to worry about well much at all. We just like, all right, I'm going to get down this track and stay on my bike. It was cool. Yeah, yeah. nice. Was it really satisfying to qualify at World Cup? Or was that kind of what you were hoping to achieve while you're out there? Yeah, yeah. After I'd qualified, I was like, that's it. That is me. Um, I have not got the head for this sport at all. Like I just cannot, <laughs> I just cannot stay on my bike. And um, I felt like that was like a huge tick. I was like, that's done. And to be honest, I was relieved and it felt like game over before I'd even done the race run. You know, I was just like, oh, mission complete. I'm just going to go and have some fun in the race run. Um, but I've, um, but you know, it's taken a couple of trips to Europe, but I've done what I wanted to achieve. Eh? I was stoked. Yeah, definitely. And then you decided it was time to have a go at uni, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I, I was, I always had sort of ambition to go to uni, and it had been three years since I left school by that point. So I was like, yeah, now's the time. I was I was happy, as I said, with what I'd achieved in the downhill. I'd, I'd seen a chunk of the world and over in Europe and in um, South America and stuff. So went to uni for three years and um, just had a blast there. I really enjoyed it. Sweet. Where did you study? Uh, I studied at Christchurch, um, same same place I grew up, and did um, geology. um, Okay. Double major geography and geology. Um, So the the writing took a pretty big backseat. To be honest, I really focused on um, like university results and also making the most of you know the partying and everything that goes along with that. eh? So. yeah, it was a great three years, eh? Nice. Did you have a view then of, with kind of what you wanted to do after uni? No, no idea. Um, I'd always, you know, I'd be racing a bit in New Zealand in the summer and um, I'd always like, oh, maybe I could go back for another crack. I was, I'm never really career-driven or anything. I wasn't thinking about using my degree. I just wanted to get a degree or go to uni uh-huh. and um, – you know, that was, I just felt like that was something I wanted to do and tick off, but I was definitely, uh, I was leaning towards doing more writing of some sort or, you know, try and do more trail building or something like that. I always wanted to carry on um, down the line of biking. And um, in my last year of uni, actually, that was when the, that was the first year of the EWS. And um, as I was saying before, I loved riding the smaller bikes and I was like, oh my God, this is, um, this is a bit of me, you know. The only problem is I'd always really, I hadn't rated my fitness, you know. Um, especially, I was like, you know, the only quali- um, time I qualified was Champerie where you don't have to pedal. And, you know, so I was like, this is, um, I'm going to have to change mentally massively to, to actually try and make this enduro stuff happen and have a good go. Um, so in the third year of my university, I got a, I got a heart rate monitor and a wind trainer. Um, and just stuck it in the garage and just just did intervals just on and off on and off on and off and uh 
Yeah, because I, I lived quite far away from the hills at that point as well. So I didn't really do too much mountain biking. I was way over near university and, yeah, just sort of started enjoying that. Just uh, just had a wee clock in front of me and just hit some intervals, eh? Try to get fit. Yeah. Fair play. So did you save up then again and go and head to Europe to, to try your luck at the EWS? Yep. Uh, managed to save up um, just with a bit of, bit of work at a blind factory and stuff. And then we went to... Europe and we did uh, with two other mates um, Hamp Dog and Sizzle and um, we got a small transit van then and uh, there was three of us in there so it was it was uh, you know we weren't in the tent but it wasn't far off it it was um, it was tight to say the least and I remember we were in the inner Leithen car park there and we'd found some pallets um, wooden pallets and we were making a bunk bed out of that and then um so it was a the whole season was pretty chaotic it was a big rigmarole every time we wanted to go to sleep we'd have to get the three bikes in the back of the van and stack them like jenga take all the wheels off and everything into the front seats and then two people on this tiny bunk and then one on the ground and so that was a busy season eh? real tight yeah fair play but you obviously enjoyed it because you've uh, you've stuck with ews ever since really yeah, I loved it. Eh? I was instantly hooked on the EWS, you know, the massive days. Um, and I just, you know, what attracted me in the first place is like I can actually carry on with this similar mentality of this that I've got in these qualifying runs and crash and then carry on. It's not going to be the end of my day. And uh-huh. um, But actually I wasn't doing that. I'd, I'd changed. For some reason I was felt like I was riding too conservative. So. I don't know what happened at uni, but <laughs> I just growing up a bit, and then I was, um, yeah, I was riding the opposite. Really, I was riding at a much lower than my sort of crashing threshold, I suppose. So I was getting through the days pretty consistently, and um, loving it, absolutely loving the riding. Um, so I was nice. pretty hooked, and then um, for some reason I was a lot more competitive then. Um, I was keen to do well, and you yeah. know, it wasn't like the first downhill days. Um, over those early World Cups, it was like, no, nah, I love the sport, and um, you know, I can get fit, um, and I'm keen to give this a really good go. Sweet. And Bergamot got behind you in the sec. Was it your second season at EWS? Yeah, that actually um, lined up really well. So, and when I was at uni, I got a local sponsor. They Bergamot started being imported to New Zealand, and then they helped me out with a cheap bike. So then, when I went over that year. I um I sort of had a bit of a connection, so I, I went and had a chat to the guys and ended up racing. Um, what did I race um, at, at Villingen? Uh, racing the, the German national champs, and I won. And <laughs> 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 that first year of um yeah enduro racing, and then so they were a German company, and they were like, well, that's really cool. And then so that for that second year, um. Yeah, I was well professional, you know. It wasn't a team or anything like that, really. But I was a, I, I had a bit of a salary, so I, I felt like I'd absolutely cracked today. The the dream is, you know, the dream had well and truly come alive. It was great. Yeah, especially after you know so many years of sleeping in the woods, roughing it, making it work. Like that must have felt amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As I say, I suppose all along it was all about just the riding and the experience and things, and then. Um, to have had that approach and then taken it to the point where I can, you know, get some money to ride a bike. I was pretty blown away. Um, I was pretty nervous, but I was, yeah, blown away. Stoked. 
Nice. And the results kind of kept continuing to improve, like working your way up. And uh, you took a top 10 in Whistler in 2017. You were ahead of Richie Rude in that race. Must have felt pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's not every day you're ahead of Richie. So I, I definitely remember that one. Um, yeah, that was a, a great day. I love racing in Whistler. Um, certainly something we've lacked in the EWS in the last couple of years due to COVID. You know, it's sort of we're in a bit of a, a European World Series at the moment. Um, but for myself and a, and a few others, the bike park tracks, you know, of Whistler and even stuff in New Zealand and Tasmania and stuff, that's where I really shine and I really love it. So, um, yeah, it was it was really good to pull off a top 10. And, um, yeah, I'd been searching for it for a good while and uh, have ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Did that turn any heads? Did brands like start approaching you um oh no i wouldn't say they were approaching me um but i was keen to use it to um to to get on a brand i was i was really keen on and um it's sort of actually it at the end of that season after my top 10 i had some other decent results as well so it was a good season but then i think scott bikes bought bergamont out and sort of disintegrated a few things including the team and I was left with nothing at that point. And um, I didn't, you know, I tried to, I tried to sort of get some, get some contracts out there and, and uh, talk to some people. But my same mentality that I discussed earlier, um, you know, keeping to myself and, and uh, you know, not sort of shying away from the limelight, there's still a lot of elements of that, um, which doesn't help at all uh, when yeah. it comes to trying to be a pro racer. So, um, yeah, with or without the results, it, if you're not talking to people and, um, you know, crushing it on social media and all that stuff, then it's really, really difficult. Um, so after that, um, team ended, I ended up, uh, just as a privateer in 2018 again. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, it sort of kept me going that top 10 in a way, because I don't think if I'd got that, I might've thrown the towel in, you know, but because I didn't have bugger all money once again, I had to work and, and um, you know, try and make this privateer year happen. But without that sort of top 10, I would have been like, is it worth it? But I knew I had some speed and I knew I just sort of needed a, a bit of a a setting to, to show it right off. So I, I stuck with it and then managed to privateer my way. I borrowed a specialised um enduro off the new zealand specialized guys and um did four races um that year 2018 and and just did what i planned which was just consistent top 20s and i was just around the 20th mark just boom 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 you know and um no crashes nothing crazy like that i just wanted to show like this is what i can do as a privateer while i'm working and stuff um you know and I, i put a lot more effort into talking to people and you know, I was just slowly learning to be more outgoing and um, and try and turn a few heads and, and get on a, a bit more support. And it paid off, right? This is how the, and I'm make sure I'm pronouncing this right, is Pole, yeah? Correct, yeah. Pole is um, to pedal and finish. And okay. um, I spoke to Leo Cockinen, the sort of main guy from um, Pole in Whistler. And it was actually really interesting. It's... Um, I'd sort of started thinking about 
bikes and and uh, what what could be changed and things as well. And and I, I started like liking the idea of more travel and um, a longer wheelbase and a bit more of a balanced bike, you know, with a longer chainsaw and things. And then I'd heard uh, my mate Lee was riding a pole and and I was like, wow, that's you know, he was loving it. And then I managed to talk to Leo and and ride a bike um, in Whistler and after the race. So that was quite cool. So I just raced the day before. Literally, I'd raced um, this like crazy train, the the stage in Whistler, and then I grabbed this pole the next day, went for a ride, and rode the same racetrack. You know, it was beaten up to shreds yeah. and stuff. But I I knew in my head what it felt like to ride it on my bike the day before, and then um, yeah, rode down rode down the hill, just did the one run, and I was like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. It sort of confirmed the things that I was thinking about bikes, and and I was really keen to get on board, and um, you know, they were growing and. Um, keen to get a bit of a team going as well and one thing led to another and come the next year I was at a team camp in uh, Madeira um, with Matty Laconan as the team manager and Leo was there with a prototype bike um, that was CNC'd together, it was a pretty crazy time so once again I was stoked Yeah that's awesome and it's like you say it's a pretty long bike but yeah maybe more balanced like longer rear centre to match the longer front centre did it take you long to get used to the bike? Did you find it kind of easy to acclimatize to it? It did actually. Uh, uh, well, I mean, it, it, it didn't take me long. Uh, that's what surprised me. It didn't take me too long. I uh, went to Madeira and I was straight in the deep end, which was brutal. Like I was, you know, took 30 hours of travel at least to get there. And that afternoon, Leo just had me straight on the stopwatch. Like I was doing time runs. It was like, oh no. And um, but I think it was the approach to me getting used to it. Usually I'd get on a new bike and I'd muck around for weeks and oh, this doesn't feel right, blah, blah, blah. And um, but it was it was quite helpful that he's the same weight as me. And, you know, we're both on a size medium. So he's just like, This is this is, you know, I've been I've created this bike. I'm the same weight as you. I've tested the suspension. I'm running 143 in the back and 78 in the front. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. And just jumped on the bike. And uh, I was pretty cozy after a few laps to start pushing it pretty hard. So I was, um, yeah, pretty excited. We just had an awesome two weeks there. It sort of fast-tracked everything. You know, we had um, shuttles every day from the Freeride Madeira guys. And um, I don't know how many laps I did. Actually, the team came down with foot and mouth disease. Like it was <laughs> like it was pretty crazy so a lot of the, uh, uh, um yeah they're really sick and i was the only one that really didn't come down with the, the illness so i just oh. had full responsibility of just lapping this bike out and making sure it you know was was going to stand the test and we were testing different shocks on it and it was really eye-opening eh, to be a part of that process i hadn't been a part of the sort of prototyping and suspension setup process before so it was exciting eh? Yeah, very cool. What was it like working with someone like Matty? Because obviously he had a huge amount of experience from downhill World Cup. Did you learn a lot from him? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Matty, I remember in that first Andor, Andorian World Cup, seeing him and he came up and asked for some water to put on his disc brakes and I was like, you know, quivering. So he was always a, <laughs> he was always an absolute idol to me, um, you know, because he was such a big deal on the Earth Series and things. And then for him to be just literally in my corner giving me advice and following me down the hill and then I'd follow him and it was awesome it was awesome and um yeah we had some different riding styles as well so we were talking through that I'd, I'd break early for corners and then like accelerate out of them he was more of a consistent flowy rider so we'd just be able to ride 
in front and behind each other and suss some things out and he was yeah really helpful it's cool nice did you change much in your like your riding style or your approach to riding as a result of working with him um uh i don't i don't think i've consciously changed too much um since since working with him i'm sure there's heaps of little things but nothing massive you know i still still just try and go to my old roots as soon as i'm in a race run and and ride just without thought i've tried to work on technique and things and um i quite often just find it complicates it and um i go back to square one and in the race runs and stuff anyway so i um i just yeah make sure the bike's set up and and you crack on nice and you um didn't have i guess the best of starts with the poly thing you had a pretty bad injury in 2019 which caused you to be out for a little while yeah yeah for sure that was pretty nasty I, the pace was there so i was coming and really excited i had like a, a i had a mechanical but i was um had a third stage placing and rode a roar and then i had a consistent race in tasmania and came 13th and i was like wow you know i had more in the bag this is this is going to happen you know i'm going to get that second top yeah. 10 and move on from here and then um i was just literally one one run away basically from jumping on the the flight to um go to Madeira for the third race and um, I was like, oh, I'll just do a cruisy one. I wasn't paying attention. Had a hugey, as you do. And um, I did what you call a terrible triad, which, so I snapped the radial head off um, my, you know, off the bone in the elbow, dislocated the ulnar bone and then the, I don't know, it's a triad because you do some other ligaments and things. Um. So a really big job of it, and I did like a – I had a five-hour surgery. They all screwed it back together and things, and I pushed really, really hard um, to to get back in time for Whistler. So I'd missed a few races, um, but I really went a handy on the recovery, even though it's a monster injury. I sort of knocked some months off that and got back in time for Whistler. But my pace, I think I was – 35th and then a north star about 35th again and i was like it feels obviously the confidence had taken a bit of a blow but i was i was telling people it's like it feels like it's getting a lot worse and they're like oh that doesn't happen you know things injuries get better yeah. <laughs> um but it turns out you know and then there was actually a break after north star until the final race and then by the final race i was back in I don't know. I wasn't anywhere near 35th. I was like, really struggling to ride a bike. Uh-huh. I couldn't rotate my hand or, or anything like that either. Um, so I had no, yeah, no twist. And um, anyway, I finally got back to New Zealand and had x-rays and things. And they were like, yeah, what's happened here is the chips in the crash, you know, obviously I pulverize those bones and there's chips of bone going and that went into my um, muscle and things. And that quite often just d- dissolves. But uh-huh. I think what was happening is it was growing. It's called um, heterotopic bone, I think, and then it was sort of growing, and so that was clogging up my muscle. And also Whoa. the new bone that was forming inside my bones was unscrewing the screws. So a lot of the pain and, and stuff, the, the screw had, head had unscrewed into my elbow joint capsule. So, um, yeah, the extra pain, the increasing pain and everything and the and the results going down was definitely warranted. And so yeah. I um I had another five hour surgery and um another pretty monster recovery process after that. Um so they took a pretty big toll actually. Like I think it just 
it just, yeah, I've taken a while to get the confidence back in the bike, I think. Um, you yeah. know, I took so many crashes as a young fella and all that stuff. It was absolutely fine. But I think it was just the effort and the process of getting back from those two massive surgeries and how crap you feel after those surgeries and things. It's just, um, I'd lost a bit of an edge um, for, for quite a few months after those. Um, so it's it's all pretty much 100% now. So I've, I've done what I need to do. Like, obviously, had the same calls from that everyone gets where it's like, oh, yeah, it's a career ender. There's no way you can get that back together and you're not going to certainly be racing bikes downhill so i was really um you know i'm stoked to get it back to this point which is you know it makes a bit of noise and things but it's 100 percent functionality so um cool yeah. so yeah you feel normal on the bike again yeah definitely normal on the bike and um and the confidence has just been growing and growing as well so it's good getting back good to the old self yeah and so looking back on your 2021 season how how do you feel about it because it was a, a challenging season for a lot of people i think quite a different ews yeah it was it was it was definitely um to be honest the the, the results sort of took me a bit by surprise um i sort of had done you know pretty much my similar training i, I didn't have a road bike in the off season but that was about the only change i made and um and i was back in Canada, the first two races, I came 35th and 35th. And I was like, wow, you know, usually I can get a sort of consistent race down and come around the 20th mark, you know, without anything too special going on. And um, it was just back. And then that seemed to be the trend for the rest of the season, you know, and we had a bit of a break in the middle of the season um, where I tried to, I tried a few new things with the bike and the fitness and things, try to turn it around. But at the end of the day, that was just my pace. Um, just seemed to be around there this year and um yeah i've had a bit of time since the season to try and think about it obviously think about what i can change on my part um and then also um yeah it's it's a bit of a a bit of a moving target i find at the moment with the ews so um it is quite hard to know what to train for i think those you know those early days i was racing in 2015 um, it was just guaranteed massive days, massive stages. Um, you know, if you're on a chairlift, you'd be dropping 5,000 meters plus on, on a day. Or if yeah. you were pedaling, you'd be doing big 2,000 meter days. And um, obviously because of COVID and things and the double headers, that the racing was a lot more in t- like high intensity, shorter stages, I'd say. Yeah. Um, just physical in a different way. It's still physical, but it wasn't like the it what didn't feel like the enduro physical, you know. Back in the you know five four years ago, you'd be just over the moon to finish an EWS. You know, you'd feel really good, you'd feel relieved, and um, and then you'd move on and worry about the result. But those days are gone. It's like it's like a hundred and ten percent pace the whole time, you know. It's um, it's not really it's not really about completing the day, and the, they're a bit smaller and things. So, it's about trying to. I suppose mix up the training and, and try and um, jump on the jump on the target for you know if that's where they're going with the UWS um, mix a few things up for 2022 and and uh, keep an eye on that I suppose got a few yeah, ideas I, up my sleeve so I was going to ask yeah I asked Katie to tell me a few things about you and she mentioned that you love stats and that maybe you like training even more than you like racing <laughs> so are there are there particular like stats related to fitness and stuff that you monitor like what sort of stuff do you like to keep an eye on 
Um, yeah, I do. I do like training. Eh? I love the off season. Just try to bettering myself and things like that. Um, I like, yeah, hitting the gym and, and just going out for big road rides and all that stuff. Um, so yeah. Um, what do I keep an eye on? I, because I train with a heart rate monitor and a power meter on most of my bikes, I can usually keep an eye on uh, my fitness at the time. I find that having those two sort of metrics really helps me. You know, whereas if you're just on a heart rate monitor, you could be feeling good, you could be feeling bad, and it's hard to just gauge your effort. So as soon as I'm laying down some power and I can calibrate that with my heart rate monitor, um, then I can be like, okay, I'm on the right track or, you know, I need a bit of work. And, and then I quite often can just test a, you know, say a one-minute effort, see what sort of power yeah. I'm putting out, and then versus like maybe only once or so in off season, I'll just do like a twenty-minute FTP test just to just to get some training zones that I want to, um, you know, work from and things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've I've sort of I really enjoy mixing it up at the moment. I've entered um, the New Zealand National Champs cross country. So Fair play. yeah, and um, in twenty twenty one, I raced masters and won that, and then this year I've been coaxed into racing the elite. So I'm out there to get <laughs> hopefully not lapped by Anton Cooper and Sam Gaze and that. But um, <laughs> that's my next goal, and and it's quite like EWS is starting quite late. It's not till June or something. So yeah, I think um, you're definitely not going to lose. You know, it's only going to help you to be training for that. Uh, you know, something else completely. Uh, just a bit of a shift in focus and go for that sort of longer, I suppose, effort. And um, yeah, I've just been getting out on the road bike and doing some some stuff around the FTP and things. And yeah, really enjoying that change. Nice. It seems to have worked pretty well for Hattie. So XC and uh, Enduro can work together, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll definitely. Um, um, after that, I'll shorten things up for the for the months leading into the EWS, especially yeah. learning what I did last year. I think really, really high intensity, high heart rate, physical stuff would be the way to go. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's no, no reason why I can't turn that around in, in the months I have following the XC to, yeah, put some, put some nice top end on top of what I've got. Good stuff. And you guys are moving to Queenstown for the for the bulk of this off season. Yeah. 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 Really excited about that. Finally found a wee spot there. So Katie and I are heading off there, um, really soon. And, um, yeah, there's a f- quite a few different draw cards. I've been in Christchurch for like four off seasons now. And I feel like I plateaued a little bit here. Um, I don't really ride too much with other people that really push me along. And I think that Queenstown crew down there, you know, push each other along. You got Eddie and Walker and Cole and, you know, all the downhillers that they got there just seems like everyone that lives in Queensland is just flat out. So <laughs> I just <laughs> want to get down and get a part of that. And Katie just wants to see him jump. So we're both winning there. Um, we'll get, we'll get down there and um, three months just uh, lapping it up in Queenstown. So pretty damn excited for that. Very nice. Cool. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but we'll wrap up with our, final four questions that we ask most people and the first of those is if our listeners had 150 pounds which i think is about 300 new zealand dollars at the moment to improve their performance on a bike what would you recommend they go and spend it on 300 bucks um i'd probably say as you said i'm a numbers guy so i'd recommend if they got uh like a garmin and a heart rate monitor 
uh-huh. um, and just started. I don't know, it's, it's definitely not the same for everyone, but it's like that time when I started training in the garage for EWS. Um, I didn't know anything about training or, or anything like that, but the fact that I got a heart rate monitor and a Garmin and I was recording, I was like, well, this is really, really motivating for me because now I've got a metric, I can try and approve it. And I was just doing things like, doing a 20 second sprint and then waiting for my heart rate to get down to a hundred again and then doing it again and then wait uh-huh. and then wait. So the interval gets a bit longer every time cause you take longer to recover and it's just doing fun things like that. And um, yeah, so it's, I reckon a Garmin and a, or whatever, Wahoo, whatever, and a, and a heart rate monitor is a good investment day. Eh? All right. Good advice. Second question. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an easy one, eh? I'd just be like, stay on the bike, you know. What are you doing? <laughs> um, you don't, you know, an, a 90% run is still worth having, way more valuable than a run that's 120% with two crashes in it, you know. It's just, yeah. it seems really obvious, and I don't know why I never really figured it out for years. I just As soon as I was in that start gate, I was absolutely fizzing. So, you know, obviously at the time I was like, okay, I'll just calm down and stay on my bike and stuff, but I never actually changed my mindset. So, yep, I'd just be another another voice um, telling myself to chill out. All right, fair play. Third one, if you could have a coaching session from anyone, past or present, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? Yeah. I, I'd watch a fair bit of YouTube and um, – mm-hmm. I'm currently a big fan of um, a triathlete actually called um, Lionel Sanders, and he's a he's an Ironman distance specialist. And um, I just watch his stuff, and um, he's got a cool story. Um, just you know, got caught up in drugs and all sorts of stuff, and now he sort of turned his life around and got into Ironman, and he's you know one of the best in the world. And um, he's just super motivating, and I think. You know, he's just next level when it comes to training. So I think I'd just um, sit down and have a chat to him or, or just maybe not actually sit down. I'd probably just try and get on a bike and hang on to him, you know, like just <laughs> just ride. I'll try and keep up. Well, you know, it'd be great because he just um, absolutely destroys himself. You know, at the end of some of these training sessions, he's crying and stuff. You know, it's it's full on. Absolutely destroys himself. But he just tells it straight. You know, he's um, not mucking around. So, yeah, a lot cool. of respect for that guy. I'll have to check it out. Is there an Ironman triathlon in your future? Oh, definitely. Just got to learn how yeah. to swim. <laughs> <laughs> so I have the same problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, I'll be I'll be keen for sure. I've been doing a bit of running and uh, I've done a few swimming sessions in the morning and stuff. Zero technique, but um, I will get there one day. Yeah, happy days. Last question then. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Um. Make my girlfriend breakfast. <laughs> keep, Solid. Keep her happy, and then um, then the day will go smoothly. <laughs> but no, Fair play. I, other than that, I, I'd I do actually try and go to the sauna most days. Actually, that's that's um, something I've been trying to do for a couple of couple of years now. I've actually uh-huh. been been at six a.m. I was at the sauna this morning, so um, pretty into that. Uh, that yeah. That's that's something I've tried to incorporate. Definitely don't make it down there every day. But, um, you know, one day I'd like to have one in my backyard and then that will definitely be a daily procedure, eh? Just helps with, 
I find it helps with sleep and I do like intervals and do a bit of a stretch in between the intervals of it and uh, just feel great after. Interesting. Have you combined that with like cold therapy as well, like plunge or anything? Yeah. Uh, they've just at my local, they've just got a cold shower, um, but a plunge would be absolutely ideal. Um, that would be the, the next step for sure. And just hot, cold, hot, cold. I reckon it's just incredible stuff. eh? Yeah. Fair play. Good stuff. Well, it's been super interesting hearing about your career to date and find out a bit more about you. If people want to follow you and keep up to speed with what you're doing, where's the best place for them to look? Uh, yeah, just Instagram, Joe Nation one on there. Nice one. All right, we'll stick a link in the show notes so people can find that. But yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time out for a chat. I hope you guys have an awesome time down in Queenstown and uh, look forward to seeing how you get on in 2022. Cheers, Chris. Thanks heaps for having me. Yeah, stoked. Nice one. Cheers, man. See ya. All right, that's it for this episode with Joe. I really hope you've enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Kotick, a brand that not only makes great bikes, but are also doing good things for our sport and for the planet in general. Their customer focus means that they've adapted to all the supply chain disruption by offering partial builds and offering to swap out components with stuff you might already have. It really is your bike built for you. So if you want a new bike, they're going to do everything they can to help you make it happen. You can check them out over at kotick.co.uk or give them a call and talk to an actual person about your dream build. Also, a massive thanks to the Strength Factory. If you live a busy life but are looking to make sustainable gains in your fitness this year, then their Over 40s mountain bike program is for you. The program is written so you can do it in a gym, but you can also do it at home with just a few resistance bands. If you want a little bit more and you've got more time and energy, then their complete MTB program is going to be the one for you. So if you want to be better this year, then head over to thestrengthfactory.uk now and check it all out. If you like print and you want a quality mountain bike print product in your life, then the brand new biannual downtime EP is for you. It's a collab between me and the awesome team over at Misspent Summers. So if you've ever seen Hurley Burley, The World Stage, Spent or Meltdown, then you'll know just how good Downtime EP is. Head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP now and get yourself a copy of issue one. Also, my full range of merch is ready and available over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. There's t-shirts, sweatshirts, shorts, joggers and hoodies and all proceeds go to help improving the show. All the links are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you're still listening and have a bit of time, then there's a few things you can do to help out. First off, tell your rider mates about the podcast, because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. Secondly, give the episodes a share on your social media. It's an awesome way to spread the word and get some buzz going around the episodes too. And if you fancy it, a review on Apple Podcasts is really helpful. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon. But until then, get out and ride. <laughs>